podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. On Florida's Space Coast, we think you can have the best of both worlds. Kind of like right now. Driving. At your desk. Maybe at the gym. But you're also grooving to some music. Visit us and you'll go to the beach. And see a rocket launch. Or go kayaking and manatee spotting. It's all waiting for you on the only beach that doubles as a launch pad. Plan your adventure today at visitspacecoast.com. Hi, Paul Dennett here. Just letting you know that Cricket Unfiltered is now on Patreon. If you are a fan of our show and would like to support us with a few dollars each month, go to patreon.com slash cricket unfiltered or click the link in the show notes on your podcast app. Menas here. Our Patreon supporters will also get some pretty cool bonus content. Paul will be doing a series of cricket history podcasts. And Menas will be doing long-form interviews with leading cricket personalities. All of these shows, plus other bonus features, will be available exclusively to our Patreon supporters. So if you want some great extra content, or if you just love the show and would like to help support us financially, please go to patreon.com slash cricketunfiltered. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Cricket Unfiltered podcast. I'm Andrew Mintzel. I'm joined by Jaleesa Apps. Hi, Jaleesa. Hello, hello, hello. And Paul Dennett's back again. Paul, how are you? Good, man. I was feeling really optimistic about Australian cricket. Oh, yeah, right, you are. And uh, we have a special guest joining us on the show today, Chief Cricket Writer for the Sydney Morning Herald, one of the most esteemed writers in Australia on cricket, Malcolm Conn. Mal, welcome. How are you? Thank you, Manners. That was a very kind introduction. Much appreciated. Well, um, I was sort of thinking the other day, I don't think Australian cricket writing's ever been as strong as it is about now. I think with your exit from Cricket Australia back into the into the other side. I just think, um, you know, with you look at all the great writers around the country, I haven't been so excited to sort of log on and read what's happening. Well, it, it uh, certainly uh, is exciting that uh, uh, newspapers and the media generally are sort of investing in, in cricket, which has been great. I mean, certainly I've found uh, Sydney Morning Herald coming back there after sort of six or seven years on the other side uh, that, they were very keen to uh, lift their cricket coverage and uh, both uh, myself and Daniel Breddick from Crick Info have, have started recently. Daniel is Chief Cricket Writer of the Age and myself at the Sydney Morning Herald. And certainly if you look at, uh, at News Corp um, with the, the stable of writers I've got there, there's some excellent writers there as well as some uh, excellent feature writers who, who are very strong on cricket. So, yeah, it is, it is exciting times. Yeah, and uh, well, let's get into the cricket headlines and start with a story your colleagues at The Age broke, Daniel Cherney. Um, so, you know, reports have emerged that there was a bit of a dust-up between Justin Langer and Australian team manager Gavin Dovey and a staff member um, who's over there doing communications. There was some concern by Langer and Dovey that they posted the Bangladesh team singing their team song, celebrating their victory over Australia. Uh, this seems quite concerning for me and quite, seems quite a narrow-minded not to just be happy that they've won. I guess, Mel, you start off, what, what was your reaction when you read that story? Well, to me, it, it just sort of, uh, I think, exemplifies or, or typifies a pretty narrow-minded view of, of how media works. And if you take 
someone like Justin who's probably been dealing with the media for 35 years and, and I think he's probably just one example of uh, how former players uh, and officials uh, would sort of see the media is that um, it, it's uh, particularly in these circumstances where the the member of the of the media is actually employed by Cricket Australia on their website, they would see it as... Uh, uh, essentially something that uh, that should be supporting Australian cricket. And if it's not, then uh, it's sort of a with us or against us mentality. And uh, it's clouded a bit by the fact that uh, uh, cricket.com.au uh, are fully owned and run by uh, Cricket Australia, but by the same token, they run as, uh, as independent as they can be as a news service and certainly a, a global uh, news service. They have a lot of followers from the South Asian countries, and, and they were just doing their job uh, as a website uh, portraying what had happened. Uh, the narrow view, um, as you mentioned, Menas, was that uh, that they weren't uh, supporting Cricket Australia or Australian cricket. Well, uh, there is a, a Cricket Australia corporate website which does that. It's just that uh, I don't think anyone knows that it, it exists. But uh, certainly the cricket.com.au is, is a news website and posts the news as it happens. Now, sometimes it might have a a bit more of a comfortable slant towards Australian cricket because that's where uh, a lot of their fans are and that's uh, how they celebrate uh, the game, obviously. We love to celebrate cricket when we can. Uh, but, yeah, I was uh, disappointed to see it and I thought it was a pretty narrow view. Do you reckon there's any chance that the Cricket Australia website was actually tempted to then report on the report and uh, go, go a bit harder? And, and um, I noticed that it's not on the website, the, the controversy. Yeah, look... I don't think so. I think that, uh, as I said, I think that the Cricket Australia sort of website, the, as opposed to their corporate website, uh, is a pretty grey area and treads a pretty fine line. And uh, those guys have done, the, the, the reporter over there and the videographer have done a great job in in being able to cover that series. They got into the bubble. Um, they shot all the footage to come back to publicise it on uh, the, the uh, main media networks. And, and uh, like the, the detailed writing that was done over there was able to give it uh, sort of a bit more depth and obviously what we could back here, sort of writing on the coverage. Uh, so I think that uh, that uh, the people involved there would have been happy to make their point and leave it at that. But to, to me, it, it just does uh, uh, highlight a uh, continuing misunderstanding of the, of the role of the media. I think that it's a really hard line for them to tread in that they are, as you said, Mal, they're there, there's an independent, essentially an independent news website, but obviously they would get things given to them that um, the ordinary news site doesn't in that they can write it in a bit of a slant. The NRL sort of walked this line for a while where they had they had their own website as well, and it reported fairly independently. Like it, it was critical of a of a lot of things and unfortunately um, it, it's still there but it, it a lot of stuff got let go when the pandemic um, hit. I think this is an it's absolutely ridiculous that they got so upset about this. I mean how fragile do you have to be that you're getting upset about a team song? The way that you fix that is you play better but you can't restrict your website and because you, otherwise you take away all integrity about what that website is there to be and you take all the credibility away and I think the the website's incredible and a lot of the stories on it I really enjoy reading I won't enjoy reading it if I know that they're going to start gagging or or sort of not so much gagging but but moderating what's on there so heavily I mean for goodness sake it's a team song 
Yeah, and I think there's also uh, an issue of focus. I mean, Australia had lost 4-1 in the West Indies. They've gone down 3-0. Now, I understand that um, there's going to be a lot of... Uh, of stresses and strains as far as uh, COVID protocols go, um, a difficult tour when you're not uh, being successful or when you're cooped up, and that can obviously uh, fray nerves and, and fray tempers. Uh, but at the same time, I would have thought that uh, the focus of, of those in and around the team would have been on improving the team's performance and uh, trying to make 3-0 into 3-1, which they actually did do. Now, um, I, I've never really had much to do with the Australian team manager, Gavin Dovey, so I don't really um, can make any comment or judgment on his performance in the role. I know he was in the role when Sandpaper Gate occurred and is in the role now. What sort of, I mean, you would know him a lot better than I do. Does he do a good job as the manager? Uh, it's an interesting one. I get along personally. I get along very well with uh, with Gavin. And uh, in the times I sort of worked as uh, fill-in media manager for the Australian team at various stages during 2019. I was certainly grateful for his guidance and support. Uh, but there's certainly a feeling coming back from, from within the team and, and, uh, and the hierarchy, some of the hierarchy there that, uh, that, um, his role, uh, may be too large that he went from, uh, team manager to manager. Uh, which gave him a broader role under Justin Langer and uh, tried to take some of, uh, of the weight off off Justin. And um, I think there's a, there's a feeling that um, he's sort of, um, uh, well, certainly some of the feedback that I've received is that he's, he's behaving more like a CEO than a team manager. And uh, there's a bit of a blurred line there, uh, certainly uh, from some uh, players and support staff as to, to what his, his role is. So from a personal point of view, I've, uh, really appreciated working with him, but, but on a broader perspective, there's certainly uh, some sort of concerning feedback coming back in that area. And again, that is made more difficult by the the COVID bubbles and then a lack of success as well. I think that those sorts of things all tend to tend to build up. The perception out there from the public is too that the Australian team, and it's been this way for quite a few years, is that the Australian team are sore losers, and that they can't take it when they're not the best and people actually if you talk to them really like seeing the Australian team lose which I hate I think it's very unpatriotic but people like seeing some people like seeing Australia lose against India they like seeing the underdog you know Bangladesh beat Australia and this kind of thing when you're chucking tantrums about a team song doesn't help that perspective it's so it just seems so beneath what they should be worrying about yeah, and again, there is a fine line there, and one that was highlighted uh, graphically with Sandpaper Gate, and, and the, the the reason that uh, Cricket Australia came down so hard on Sandpaper Gate wasn't Sandpaper Gate as an isolated incident, as bad as it was, but the fact that the Australian be- team behaviour generally uh, was uh, going downhill. It had never been great. Australia had did have a reputation as the ugly Australians, which at times was justified. Uh, and uh, the behaviour sort of leading into Sandpaper Gate was was terrible. Uh, it was it was as, and if you just uh, read what uh, match referee Jeff Crow said, the former New Zealand captain, who's who's a, an eminently sensible and, and a lovely guy, and a, and a great lover of cricket, um, he said it's the worst series that he'd ever dealt with in terms of team behaviour. So the players were charged with bringing the game into disrepute, uh, and it, it was while Sandpaper Gate was the central issue and, and was the was the log that broke the camel's back. Uh, certainly the, the team's behaviour generally uh, 
was a real focus and uh, it certainly has improved significantly uh, following Sandpaper Gate. Now, some people might say, well, look, our results haven't improved all that much, so maybe they're not going hard enough, but uh, it's actually interesting. Uh, my father was uh, a Kiwi and loved his All Blacks and loved his cricket, and uh, he always felt that the Australians played braceless cricket, um, which I... As a young bloke growing up, uh, I thought he was a softie and that uh, the Australians were the best, that the Australian cricket team was the best thing in the whole world and I loved them. But as you grow up and you get broader perspective, um, Australia did have to improve its behaviour and to their credit under Tim Payne and Justin Langer, they have. Um, but as you say, um, they tread a fine line in terms of their behaviour because of the reputation they've, they've carried over, over time. Where do you think Langer stands now with the... With the team, I was reading in the report that there were some players who were sort of disturbed by the, the confrontation, whether that was more with Dovey or with Langer, I'm not sure. But uh, the feedback out of the Gold Coast Conference was that everything was okay. Do, do you think that's still largely true or there there's still tensions there? Oh, look, I think there are various uh, various uh, uh, various truths came out of that uh, Gold Coast uh, or, or was it Gold Coast or Sunshine Coast? I can't remember now. Um, but Queensland sort of conference, it depends who you talk to as to as to what view you get. I don't think, uh, I mean, I thought that uh, it was very telling um, that Aaron Finch, the one-day captain, who is, who is a terrific fella and, and, a, and, a, and a good leader, I think, a good leader of men, um, he, he said, uh, he described uh, the feedback uh, uh that Langer received as uh, as uh, uh, confrontational, or being uh, that Langer being confronted by the by the feedback. Well, um, let's just say that Justin's received pretty consistent feedback from uh, sections of the of the team over uh, through various uh, surveys like this over time. And um, it, uh, if it was a surprise publicly, I don't think it would have been a surprise privately. And um, Depending on who you talk to, it's a sort of a leopards and spots issue. Spots issue of Justin is Justin, and you you take what you get. And um, it is a high stress environment. I have worked in it at, at various stages, and it is a high stress environment. And um, one of the difficulties he has is, is is not being able to sort of de stress the team. I mean, there's sort of a, uh, if you talk to um, the people involved across time, they'll t- talk about a sort of a chalk and cheese response uh, to, uh, say, uh, Darren Lehman's coaching, uh, which you know, some people said was, was quite loose compared to sort of Justin Langer's coaching, which is sort of everyone sort of uh, wound up like a spring. So it's sort of – and the one thing that, uh, that Darren Lehman did have, uh, which he's highly credited with, is a great ability to de-stress the dressing room. And, and uh, Justin doesn't, doesn't uh, have that quality. He's, uh, he's uh, an intense guy. And uh, it, is a, it is a stressful environment. Do you think we'd be having this conversation if Australia had won against India, though? It, it, it sort of comes across that it was a tough summer and people are pointing the fingers. Well, that's a, that's a fair comment. Uh, and, look, you know, I've, I've spoken to a variety of people about this in, involved, uh, and some of them say, look, it shouldn't matter who the coach is. It shouldn't matter how the coach operates. It's entirely up to the players, and the players fail to perform, and some of them... You know, they'll put their hand up and say, you know, that's the case. But um, it's been a pretty consistent um, feedback for, for a, a fair amount of time about the, the, the sort of stress in the environment. Um, and that has, uh, that has had a, a, a telling effect on, on some players. 
Um, other players will say, well, look, um, we've just got to get on with it. It's entirely up to us. You know, the coach doesn't bowl, he doesn't bat, he doesn't field. Um, that's our job. Uh, but having said that, cricket is a unique environment. It's not like a footy club where you come and go and it's pretty stable, although obviously it hasn't been with COVID over the last year or two. Um, and I think that in some cases we've seen with the footy codes that that's, that's been obvious on players and the impact that it's had on players, probably particularly in rugby league. Um, but cricket's a, a, a funny beast. Like when I my first Ashes tour was in 1993 and we were away for 18 weeks. Um, and there wasn't much family around at that stage. And certainly the journos couldn't afford to fly their families out. Um, so that was a, that was a long and difficult haul where you're living in each other's pockets. And that was just, you know, through that, there was a period there of two or three years where I reckon I was a, away for, you know, three or four times as much as I was at home. Um, wow. and it was, it was, it was, oh, well, if you go through that period, we went Sri Lanka 92, I think had a couple of months at home, did a home season. Went straight to New Zealand, had three weeks off, went straight to England for 18 months in 93, then had uh, maybe uh, came back mid-September uh, by the beginning, straight into pre-season training, into another home season and then into South Africa. So there was very little time at home uh, for anybody. So it's, it's always been a tough haul. Um, it's just that families have become a more important part of that tough haul and the domestic season has changed completely with uh, the big bash um, adding another layer on top of, the, of of that as well. So it's a unique environment and it's a difficult environment and it's and it can be difficult for young men um, and particularly people who who feel like they don't have much support as much as they might sort of want support from the and get the support that the, the that the coach and the support staff can give. It's still a pretty lonely time if you get dropped and Justin felt that himself at various stages on various tours where, you know, you'd be all in the bar and you'd see sort of Justin sort of slightly one out because 2001 Ashes, he'd been dropped. Damien Martin had come into the team and no matter what's and then he'd been struggling um, at in county level too. He'd been trying so hard that, it, that, it, that he'd sort of been seizing up and not scoring any runs in the county games either. So it becomes a long and difficult tour and Justin's been through all that. He understands sort of how it works. Um, but um, when you're a young guy going through it, it's, there's not much consolation regardless of what people try to do. And having families around is, is certainly a welcome distraction. Um, teachers are about the real world and what matters and what doesn't. If your four-year-old's uh, got a tooth, uh, got uh, teeth coming through and, and is crying, then they couldn't care less whether you made one or a hundred. <laughs> I'm just uh, marvelling at the resources back in the day, Mal, to send you for that long. I can't. It's really funny when I talk to people that um, were in media that long ago and, and were going on all these tours. I just can't imagine what news organisations doing that now. It's not that oh, long ago, Jaleesa. How old do you think we are? <laughs> <laughs> You're right. It is remarkable. I mean, we, we used to go, we basically flew flew out with the team and flew back with the team. So oh. on that 93 Ashes tour, we, we We'd been in New Zealand. We played three tests in five one days in six and a half weeks. Um, had three weeks off. Uh, Murphy's had a knee operation, so he wasn't right when uh, when he went to uh, England in '93. Uh, and then we we spent the first six weeks. We played the only three internationals we played in the first six weeks of that Ashes tour were three one day internationals. We played minor counties. We played amateurs. We played you name them. We played them. And and. Yeah. Played every county, um, two county matches between each test matches, I think for the, except for the last one or two test matches, because all the counties want to play the touring team because they filled their grounds up and they got a bit of extra coin. So 
it was a traditional sort of um, long and and at times difficult tour, but that was just the way it was. It wasn't all, right. all that difficult for my playing sense because I thrashed them. Mm. <laughs> I went to the Trent Bridge test of that series. Now, um, from let's let's dig into this Bangladesh tour disaster. I've been forlorn with um, the grief from that tour because it was just got progressively worse and it was such a nightmare. But Paul, um, can you just sort of give us a window into your you know maniac's mind about why you're positive about Australian cricket? <laughs> I think because as, as someone who likes to bet on the game, you've got to be contrarian in order to win. So maybe it's just a natural defence mechanism. I don't know. But I suppose I'm happy the the fact that they've been found out now in some ways that they've got to get a bit more cunning and a bit more desperate rather than limp through and um, get some half-decent results against West Indies and Bangladesh. This is kind of like a bit of a blowtorch. They'll be less likely to tolerate players that aren't really there. I think that someone like Riley Meredith, who I don't think was good enough to be in the in the side, should hopefully not be seen in the World Cup. Maybe that would have been different if things had gone differently. And I'm also positive about, obviously, uh, Mitchell Marsh and Dan Christian. Um, There's only five balls that he got, got kind of potentially resurrected his career. Mal, do you think he's got a chance of being picked? Oh, I think he's got an outside chance as the X Factor. Um can do a bit of both, depending on the conditions. I mean, you've got to remember those conditions. Those wickets in the UAE are going to be very worn. They'll play the IPL and they'll play a lot of cricket on them with the T20 World Cup. And I think that that the medium-paced off-cutters that he bowls, that he bowled so effectively in that last game, when I think he got two for 17 off four overs or something, will hold in the wicket. Um, and so I think that that could be... Instead of playing three quicks, they could play two quicks, two splinters and a couple of all-rounders, and he could be one of the all-rounders. So... I think he might be a, a bits and pieces player, but as you say, it's hit and miss. You know, if, if you're looking to uh, plan a semi-final victory uh, to go into a final, then you wouldn't uh, you wouldn't be sort of marking Dan Christian down as a man to get you home. You, he, he's sort of uh, cream on the cake. I found uh, something really funny after this um, tour when Matthew Wade did his press conference. So for people at home that don't know, you sort of you, they do a press conference where they have all the media right now on Zoom, and then they send the next day or a few hours later they'll send out what's called a VNR, which is um, your press release with that with video of that press conference attached. Anyway, so the VNR came through, and the um, subject line was plenty of positives to take out of Bangladesh tour, and I thought to myself, well, the only positive is that no one could see it because you didn't ne- negotiate a broadcast deal and then the first thing in the press conference was Matthew Wade saying there wasn't many positives to take out of this <laughs> and, and there wasn't and that's and that's right I mean I think I think um if we look at the, at the tour generally I think there was sort of half a dozen probably frontline or potential frontline white ball players missing including some of the very best so other players were given opportunities and I just think that that uh, but the West Indies uh, one, the wickets in St Lucia weren't weren't bad. They were okay. I mean, those are sort of things that you probably expect in the UAE. And uh, you've got players who are who are big bash stars like Josh Philippi, who are just finding because he wants to sort of scoop a lot of his stuff to the league side um, that he just doesn't have the the technique against better bowling uh, to to be able to manage himself through that. So. I think that it, it, it sort of highlights the gap between the Big Bash and T20 international cricket. Uh, and I think in Philippi's case, it's also highlighted by the fact that he's actually got a pretty modest uh, first-class batting average. I think it's about 30, and he hasn't been a, 
a state regular, and I think that's because he's got a pretty loose technique, um, and it, that gets found out at international level, even at, even at 2020. Uh, I think it's a reality check. I just think it reinforces the fact that Australia doesn't have much batting depth uh, and that uh, I think it's a, a broader issue of um, players uh, not being good enough but also not being used to the conditions. And I think the Bangladesh series, I, I just really think that, that Bangladesh just doctored that up uh, to make sure they won the series, which they did, and they, they, they'll celebrate... 4-1 against Australia any time of the day, but I don't think that took anyone's cricket forward. I don't think that anybody anywhere else in the world will ever play on wickets like that. Uh, so I don't. I just don't know in the long term what that achieved for Australia's preparation for the T20 World Cup. I actually think that these two tools in terms of preparation for Australia's T20 World Cup were detrimental to the team and the players. The players will have lost confidence. The coaching staff and the selectors have clearly in a quandary. Matthew Wade was never going to open the batting in the World Cup. Apparently, that's Finch and Warner. And yet, as soon as something goes wrong, he's back up the top opening the batting again, not playing down in the middle order. So, I don't think it did uh, Australian cricket any good. Yeah, I agree with you, Malcolm. I think it was a waste of time. But I also think they were in a pretty tough spot with all the withdrawals because if they had been able to take their best side, then it would have been worthwhile. And um, they just weren't able to. So, I do have some sympathy for the situation and also... um, they just didn't get better in the Bangladesh series. That's what's concerned me. They got There was no sort of smarts about it. There was no adjustment. So it's just a nightmare. Do you think that it's sustainable for um, Justin Langer to coach um, both formats or really anyone to coach both formats, when you, particularly when you've got tours that clash, as we saw uh, earlier last year, last year or this year? I'm losing track of my time. But when you've got tours that clash uh, test series in 2020 that, uh, do you sort of need to treat it like a whole new squad and a whole new coach where they're not trying to think about, well, hang on, I've got test matches coming up, so I need to balance my players. Is it sustainable to be able to um, coach both and pro- give priority to both? Well, I think the, the, the long-term plan, as I understand it, and I'm, I'm a fair way from it, obviously, is – so keep the head coach uh, in place for continuity. And I, and I don't mind that. I think that continuity across uh, message, continuity across uh, players who might play um, more than one format, but by the same time, time having sort of senior assistants, uh, Andrew McDonald, uh, obvious one, he took the, the 2020 squad to New Zealand uh, earlier this year uh, when Justin was going to take the test squad to South Africa, but the South African tour was cancelled at the last minute. I've now brought back um, Michael Divanudo uh, as a specialist coach. He's been in the setup before. He's also got coaching experience uh, in county cricket in England. And I think that the plan uh, over time was for McDonald and for Divanudo to take some of the white ball tours. Uh, and uh, while Justin would, uh, or whoever the coaches, head coaches at the time, would continue a sort of a a continuity overseeing role that the day-to-day sort of uh, slog of being on tour would would be lessened uh, for the head coach and that uh, it would also uh, be a great opportunity to develop um, more coaches in Australia because one of the areas where Australia lags is, is de- and I think world cricket lags, is developing coaches. And I just don't think, say, at state level, they're pl- paid uh, anywhere near enough uh, to uh, be able to have a, a, a decent pool of coaches where we can get a decent transition. Now, Mal, you wrote a story this week that 
uh, the Australian players will be free to play in the IPL and prepare for the T20 World Cup in that little second half of the IPL scheduled in for in the UAE. Is that is that correct? I hope so. I wrote it. <laughs> yes, it's my understanding that the um, the fairly obscure sort of triangular that was arranged originally arranged in India uh, when the T20 World Cup was going to be played in India, played in India. And, and had certainly had merit at that stage, given it would have been uh, in the same country where the T20 World Cup was going to be played, was that it was arranged by Afghanistan and included the West Indies and Australia as a World Cup warm-up. Well, that was subsequently moved out, or the discussions were around moving it out of India and, and playing it in Sri Lanka. Uh, but then the whole logistics of going from country to country and doing quarantine and, and all that sort of stuff just got too hard. And uh, the logical thing, uh, certainly for this World Cup, is that Given the, the, the last third, the suspended third or so of the uh, IPL is being moved to uh, the UAE directly before the T20 World Cup, then you're not going to get better 2020 practice for a, a World Cup in the UAE than playing against the best 2020 players in the UAE, whether you're playing with them, whether you're playing against them. Um, and so it's just a no-brainer as far as uh, I'm concerned to, uh, to um, prepare the players for that, uh, for the for the, uh, the World Cup, particularly the back end of that World Cup, uh, where it might turn a bit. So, I, I think it's, uh, and I think that uh, more broadly, I think we've just got to get used to the fact, accept the fact that the IPL is an important part of world cricket, and it's a great opportunity for players who haven't played a lot of uh, international cricket in some cases, if they get picked up, like a, a Riley Meredith, to go over there. Yes, they earn a lot of money, but gee whiz, they play against some very good players in foreign conditions. They share dressing rooms with the best players in the world. I just think it's a no-brainer for your cricket education. I would just pencil it in every time. And all those who aren't going to the IPL, I'd do what uh, is, it was going to happen this season. I'd send them all to Darwin and uh, and have uh, have camps up in Darwin and, and play uh, 2020 cricket up there or one-day cricket up there uh, in uh, decent conditions uh, with uh, players from in promising players from various states uh, to be able to uh, to keep cricket going up there as well. The players do go back to the IPL. Um, how's that going to make comments that Aaron Finch and others made that indicated they weren't all that keen for them to do so? Will the reality of the fact that it's good preparation hold sway and that that, that will be regarded as okay? And and will Cricket Australia need to make that message clear to the public as well? Well, I think. It's one of those ones uh, around scheduling and, uh, like, no one can tell me that the tours that those players have just been on in uh, the West Indies and Bangladesh is going to be as good for their 2020 cricket in the UAE than playing the the IPL in the UAE. Uh, I agree. uh, But in different circumstances, uh, maybe it's different. Uh, I think you've got to take a broader view. Um, if you look at New Zealand, New Zealand have got tours of Pakistan and Bangladesh coming up, but I've, they've let their four best players go, including Captain Kane Williamson and three of their quicks, to go and play in the IPL because they see that as the best preparation. Yeah. Last week, England cancelled a tour of uh, Bangladesh and said that their players could go to the IPL. Now, not all of them will because they've had a hectic schedule, England. Um, uh, particularly with all the the bubble life that they've had to leave, lead, but a lot of players will go over there and they will they will get uh, good preparation. The West Indies in Afghanistan now that they're not being part of that triangular, and that I've told they could go. In fact, the West Indies players would go anyway. And 
Above anything else in a broader view, the IPL makes cricket far more attractive for players from countries that don't pay very much. And play, countries that don't pay very much are countries outside India, Australia and England in that order. So most of the players playing international cricket aren't all that well paid. Mm. If you've got the carrot of being able to earn a terrific living uh, for two months of the year out of the IPL, then that, that encourages you to keep playing at least in some capacity for your country. Like you've got, you can argue whether or not Chris Gale should still be playing at the age of 42, but you've got players like uh, Chris Gale, um, Dan Christian's another one. Uh, there's players who would have been lost to the game if it hadn't have been for the IPL to keep them going and then make them available uh, for other competitions. Uh, means the West, Indomest- West Indies domestic big bash competition, uh, sorry, um, T20 competition is better. It means that uh, Australia's big bash competition is better because you've got players like Dan Christian, uh, Brett Lee played on, a few of the other players played on. Um, so I think it's a, a terrific thing for world cricket and I think it's something that needs to be embraced and I think that the international schedule uh, needs, to be, needs to be looked at. I guess there were some concerns though perhaps that the Aussie players would come back from the IPL, then the T20 World Cup and be completely cooked for the Ashes, the, the multi-format players. Well, I agree. I agree with that too. And uh, that's where the scheduling has to be looked at. And uh, it's going to be interesting. Each player's got a personal choice. And some of those players uh, in England will exercise a personal choice. In, in Australia, they'll probably exercise a personal choice. Uh, Mitchell Stark has decided um, that, that he wasn't going to play IPL for the last two years. He's probably given up you know, $5 million over the last two years. Um, so uh, he's uh, made a, a decision there. Um, some other players, I think Josh Philippi was signed up for the IPL and just sort of thought, no, this is too hard. Um, so he pulled out. Um, so players will make individual decisions. Uh, I agree that um, it, it is difficult at times with scheduling, uh, but I think that um, there's got to be a balance. And I think that... Uh, major competitions like if you look at uh the big bash the big bash may now be worth as much as say you know 40 percent of australia's media rights so 2020 cricket is fundamentally important to the health of world cricket so there's got to be a balance found and at the moment we haven't got that balance pretty easy for someone like finch to um fire shots and say that players shouldn't go back to the ipl when like let's remember he wasn't picked up he would be in this exact same position, except that nobody wanted him. Yeah. I'm just wondering whether um, he was, uh, at that stage, that triangular with um, uh, Afghanistan and the West Indies in Sri Lanka was still scheduled, and that's mm. uh, an Australian commitment. And I can understand as captain or coach, you probably want to get the squad together and, and try and work through various scenarios of what you wanted to do and how you wanted to play, but that all went out the window, obviously, uh, on the most recent tour of, of the West Indies in Bangladesh because players were just thrown all over the place. Mm. Now, Mel, I have to thank you very much for cheering me up a couple of weeks ago because, um, you know, we've been in lockdown for a long time and I clicked onto the SMH and saw this headline, Ashes threats by England are condescending and ungrateful. Former Ashes winning England captain Michael Vaughan and his cranky cricket mates are sounding, dare I say it, like whinging poms. Vaughan's latest condescending lecture via his column would be would have been more fitting of a preened English lord 200 years ago. 
Wow. Now, are you trying to get people, are you trying to get the English fans to tear up your Wikipedia page more? <laughs> well, I've certainly done a good job of it. They had me, uh, <laughs> my nine-year-old tries to fix it up from time to time, but uh, <laughs> I've had me born in New Zealand for a fair part of my uh, Wikipedia existence, so it's been quite amusing. I am the first devil, the devil right. works hard, but the uh, English cricket fans work harder. That's right, yeah. <laughs> I just think that it's out of order, that um, that uh, regardless of the fact that he might be an Ashes winning captain, I don't think he's got any right to lecture uh, Australians or the Australian government about what they can and can't do. I mean, you just have to look back to India last year to see that uh, there was a lot of work put in behind the scenes to make sure the Indian family could, could tour. Now, every country... Uh, handles the pandemic differently and uh, Australia with its vaccine rollout has handled it particularly poorly I think uh, and that's made things like um, the the whole uh, quarantines and lockdowns more difficult but by the same token did you want do we want did we want to go down the UK's path of an eight month lockdown 130,000 dead and six million with COVID so we haven't done too badly in the scheme of things and I just think that that is something that Cricket Australia and the ECB, who are probably embarrassed about it as well, uh, are well aware of and are talking about and are, and are working hard with the Australian government to make sure it happens. And the last thing you need is someone like Michael Vaughan mouthing off like that and then uh, getting up the nose of some uh, cranky politician who, who then starts to get the hump and says, oh, well, we've got 40,000 Australians waiting to come home. They're our priority, the cricket the the cricket, we're not bringing cricketers' families over for a junket. So um, they've got to be careful the way they, they try and push it. It's certainly not um, best practice in terms of negotiating with the government about how to get people in a country in, which is largely in, largely in lockdown. There seems to be um, a sticking point around that they don't even want their families to do the two weeks quarantine that the team will do. So, you know, get, look, it's going to be very difficult to get around that. It just won't happen. You can't. You won't be able to, from an optics point of view, the government will not allow families, unless we're at a vastly different point, but the government won't allow families to come in and not quarantine, but say to people whose dying relatives could die in that 14 days, well, you have to quarantine. It just won't happen. Well, we've got uh, people who are, who are fully vaccinated who can't get back into Australia. So the, the cricketers' wives should think them, and, and, and families should think themselves fortunate that they can actually uh, travel with their their uh, partners and, and husbands uh, to be part of it. And if two weeks quarantine is part of it, then it's just going to have to be part of it. Excellent stuff. All right. We're going to take a very quick break. That was the cricket headlines. Then we're going to be back and we're going to ask Mel about his journey covering cricket. Welcome back to the Cricket Unfiltered podcast. I'm Menas. I'm with Jaleesa, Paul, and special guest Malcolm Conn from the Sydney Morning Herald. And let's start off. Um, Paul Dennett's found this little bit of audio from a Crash, who also started on the 1993 tour. Let's have a listen. This is about Mal. And that's why I think every journalist that ever toured with Malcolm Conn uh, from The Australian uh, owes him a beer and a feed and, and, a, and, a, and a pat on the back because so often Malcolm would sit front and centre in the front row and say, well, Steve, uh, in your last uh, seven innings, you're, you're averaging 19. Are you concerned about your test future? You know, and then we'd all use the answer. It's not easy. I'll admit there's plenty of times when I felt cautious about asking questions at press conferences. It's not easy, you know, to, 
And that's where I felt con was, was quite outstanding, actually. Paul? From the Writers Hour podcast. And Mal, I'm just interested uh, when you know that there are tough questions to be asked. It seems like you're the one that was never afraid to do it. Um, is that something you find difficult? How, how did you approach it? Yeah, look, it's those things are never easy. Um, and particularly in a cricket environment when, you, and, and it's probably not so much these days, it's a bit more fractured. But certainly uh, for most of my sort of cricket writing career, you would travel with the team. So whether you're in Australia or overseas, you'd be in the team hotel, you'd be going down to breakfast and, you know, you'd, the, the boys had had a bad day and, and they'd all have their heads down and uh, you'd go and find a table over in the corner by yourself and, and, and you know, <laughs> talk to all your imaginary mates. So it could be sort of pretty uncomfortable at times. Uh, but that was the job. Look, you, you, if you look at it, your, your loyalty is uh, to your uh, employer. But greater than that, uh, if you're an Australian uh, cricket fan as I am, and I love the game, and I've loved the game for you know for as long as I can remember, um, that you have an obligation to Australian cricket fans to be able to to bring them, uh, dare I say, it, manners an unfiltered view of the of the world. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, it's a privilege to play cricket for Australia. Um, we've got a lot of good cricketers who want to play. Sometimes we don't have quite enough, perhaps, but. But uh, it is the job of uh, any journalist, I think, to uh, to shine light uh, in dark corners, whether it's uh, sport or whether it's somewhere else. And uh, that uh, can be difficult at times. But in the end, um, you've got to live with yourself. And I couldn't live with myself if I was going to tiptoe uh, around uh, hard issues. Uh, as far as I'm concerned, uh, that's my job and that's the way I'm keep going to keep doing it. Robert Craddock also mentioned um, uh, your relationship with Steve Waugh in particular, that he, um, although he might have been combative with you in the conferences, respected you more so than other journalists because you asked those um, difficult questions. You didn't hide from them. What was it like um, uh, dealing with Steve Waugh? Oh, look, he was, a, he was a pretty strong and straightforward guy. And, and there were times when you, you did have to sort of stand your ground. Um, and, um, you know, Steve had a, had a, a pretty strong view of the world that, uh, that I didn't always agree with. And of course, uh, players are going to be colored by their own prism. It's, it, it takes a, a hell of a lot of hard work and you're involved and there's a hell of a lot of pressure that I will never understand. And, and all of us, I'm, I'm guessing will never understand if you're an elite sportsman in, in a, in a, uh, in a pressure cooker situation where the, 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 the cricket world and the, the country's focus is on you all the time. Um, and that focus, the pointy end of that focus gets at press conferences when, when people aim up. And uh, sometimes there's frustration. Sometimes there's a different view. There might have been times when I did go too hard, when I might have uh, uh, had a bit more of a, a human consideration for uh, the players who were sort of uh, sitting sort of two or three metres from me. But by the same token, it's, uh, if you look at the, the, the selectors, the selectors are only doing their job if they make hard decisions. Now, in the end, journalists don't pick and drop players. Selectors pick and drop players. Uh, but it's up to us to uh, to cover it uh, to fairly without fear or favour. Now, Jaleesa wants to ask you about your Walkley Award-winning story. Yeah, I have always wanted to ask you about this, Mel. And 5,000 times I've chickened out, so I'm glad I've got the platform to finally corny on it. First of all, I think for people who maybe are new to cricket or because um, we do get a lot of people that write in and say that they've just started listening to cricket, can you explain the story succinctly? Well, match fixing uh, and uh, bookmakers' uh, influence 
violence on cricket was a very big issue through the uh, the 90s. Um, it came up uh, in Australia in the early 90s in a big way when Phil Wilkins uh, wrote a piece saying that uh, Salam Malik, uh, the Pakistan captain at the time, had appro- approached Shane Warne and Tim May. Um, and there was always uh, question marks about uh, about shady stuff going on. So uh, I took a, a strong interest in it uh, in terms of... Um, it was difficult to um, put a finger on it. It was very grey and very shady. But um, on the 98 uh, tour of India, we we certainly, um, Crash and I certainly tried to sort of get some sort of a handle on it. The 98 tour of Pakistan. And at Pakistan, we're having Lahore High Court uh, hearings about match fixing. And I went and covered those, myself and Mark Ray, went and covered a number of those hearings. It was fascinating, uh, absolutely fascinating. If you've got a couple of hours, I'll talk you through it uh, at, a, at a later date. But um, And there I was shown a letter uh, by one of the, the uh, council assisting um, the Pakistan board claiming that um, Mark Waugh was involved with a bookmaker. And I didn't believe it. And, and I sort of, uh, I asked around and asked um, Cricket Australia and uh, they sort of they say that they sort of explicitly said that they had uh, no information of Mark Warren uh, being involved uh, in match fixing. And I thought, fair enough. And I went through all his statistics and his performances on the uh, subcontinent uh, as a one-day player in particular were outstanding. Uh, then we came back to Australia for the start of the Ashes in 98, 99, and it was, the, it was the launch of the Ashes in Brisbane. And a whole lot of us went out for a drink, and I was, goodness knows what time, uh, in the back dark corner of a bar somewhere, and I just started talking to someone, and he started talking about, oh, what about the Australians involved? And I said, oh, what do you mean? And, uh, and I thought I was a bit of authority on match fixing, and he sort of said, well, what about all that stuff that, you know, people behind the scenes have been talking about with Mark Wall? And uh, so... I said, what do you, uh, and uh, I thought, you know what, I've been in these situations before and woke up the next morning and, f- and not remember what was said. So I raced over to the bar and I grabbed half a dozen coats and a pen off the bar. <laughs> and I came back and I started writing things on the back of the coasters and sticking them in my pocket. And I woke up the next day and uh, I just remember um, looking over and seeing these coasters lined up next to the uh, telephone and thinking, that's right, now I remember. And I went over and I couldn't read much of what I'd written at the time, but it did spark the fact that this guy had said that Mark Ward had been involved. So I dug and I dug and I dug. And I eventually got enough to get uh, Cricket Australia to fess up that not only had Mark Ward been involved with a bookmaker, but Shane Warne had been too. There was no evidence of any match fixing. They'd only been they'd been taking payments to give information, which they had argued was the same that they would give to the media about, you know, how do you think the team is going to go? What do you think the pitch is going to play like? What do you think the weather is going to be? They all thought it was pretty mundane and innocuous. And I think Warney might have taken his money and uh, 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 and and sort of blowing it, uh, but that but they had been fined by the Australian Cricket Board in early 1995 uh, at the airport as the team was about to go to the West Indies for that historic um, series, which Australia won to end the sort of a two decade dominance of the West Indies. 
And so there was an Australian Cricket Board meeting where the chief executive and the chairman left that meeting, went to the airport, fined Mark Warren and Shane Warne about the same amount of money that they that they were given by bookmakers for previ- for being involved back in 1994, um, and then put them on a plane to the West Indies in 95. So that had been buried for sort of the best part of four years. Um, so the the crime was as much the cover-up from the Australian Cricket Board at a time when uh, there should have been uh, more open and honest uh, dealings with match-fixing and, and bookmakers than it was about Mark Warren and Shane Warren taking the money. But it certainly um, helped blow the lid on everything and get a much stronger perspective on the whole thing, which um, seems to have been, it's still around, but it seems to have been curtailed to a significant extent. That's what I wondered if, because uh, obviously I, I was too young to actually remember this story in real time, but um, years later, reading everything about it, it felt like to me that the, it, the what they were providing seems, and if it is correct, pretty innocuous. It was more that the cover-up by, um, the Australian cricket and even like Bobby, Bobby Simpson, the coach didn't even know or anything like that. Was that more the problem? Yeah, I think it was a two-pronged problem. I think that, um, well, what they did at the time, and, and there was no background to it either. So they, they had no background in terms of, you know, there's like, there can be some pretty grey areas sometimes, and this was a grey area. Um, and, and there was no advice from anybody else. There was no rule book. Um, uh, around um, taking money for information. Uh, they, they weren't, uh, no evidence to suggest they were fixing matches. Um, but I liken it to if someone from, if someone comes up to you with a wad of $100 bills and says, I want you to stand on that corner and wave every time a police car goes past, uh, is that the right thing to do or the wrong thing to do? That's the wrong thing. Because you're not committing a crime standing on the footpath waving every time a police car goes past, but you could be aiding and abetting a crime uh, because you've probably been paid by the mafia or someone else. <laughs> To, uh, to let them know what's going on. So I think it's a bit like this, where everyone knew that, uh, that match-fixing and betting went on, and the prime problem was bookma- illegal bookmakers on the subcontinent. So dealing with illegal bookmakers, even though you weren't match-fixing, was, was actually perpetuating the problem. And it wasn't even that much money that they were getting, was no, it? about $8,000, I think. Mm. Um, I just wondered if that how when you when you reported it, did you know that it was going to be such a big story as it was at the time? Were you like, yeah, this is going to be a big story? Or did it even get bigger than what you thought? Oh, uh, I knew it was going to be big. I'd, I'd gone to Cricket Australia once before, and I'd said no comment to everything. Mm. And I'd also been told by someone from Cricket Australia that I want to get it right, um, basically meaning brackets or we'll sue you, close brackets. <laughs> yeah. Um, but um, I knew it was going to be big because that whole grey match-fixing bookmaker stuff had been floating around. There'd been stuff, high-profile players from other countries had been hauled up at the Lahore High Court. I was in the Lahore High Court when Wazamakran was hauled up and, and questioned about it. So, you know, there was big names going around being accused, but no one had been, really been able to put their their finger on very much. I mean, for all the accusations and claims, I think Salah Malik uh, may have been the only one at that stage had been um, banned uh, because of it. And uh, did it, did, was it difficult to do your job after that? Did it change the relationships at all or did everything sort of go back to normal? 
I thought it would have been. I mean, I, I had a pretty um, relationships are sort of individual relationships. I mean, if you're dealing with a, a cricket team, um, the, the cricket teams, are, cricket's a funny sport in that it's very much a team game, but it, it's almost played by a bunch of like it's like getting a bunch of golf professionals together because you're the only blokes that bowls and you're the only bloke that bats. And in the end, it's it's basically up to you. And everyone's desperate to hang on to their place in the team. It's not like footy where you need the midfielder to kick it to the full forward to kick a goal or whatever the case may be. Um, so I had a pretty standoffish relationship with the team. I mean, some players I go on with well, other players um, pretty standoffish. Some players it's pretty standoffish with the media generally. Like they just bracket the media as, you know, the media and in inverted commas and sort of just sort of stay away from us. Um, but... I thought that this would be a really difficult, um, but it wasn't. In fact, some players would sort of, you know, come over and openly talk to me and I'd be sort of standing there thinking, mate, should you be talking to me? <laughs> yeah, right. In the same way that uh, a former Australian Cricket Board um, chairman actually came and um, I was at a function and he came over and congratulated me not long after the story appeared and said, well done. And he was still on the, the Cricket Board, the Australian Cricket Board at that stage. And I said, should you be seen speaking to me? And he said, no, well done. You've done the the game a great service. So clearly there was mixed feelings at the time about covering the whole thing up. Wow. Incredible. What about specifically with um, Warren and War? What's your relationship with with them like in the years since? Oh, it was very difficult with Warren and War um, during their playing days. But that was also because... um, Shane was always a sort of a, a beacon for controversy mm. you know, and didn't help himself sometimes and didn't really understand how the, the media worked. Like just because you wrote something about him he didn't like didn't mean that we didn't like him. But, um, yeah, he, he, I think I got banned for life about eight times for various things I wrote about him. <laughs> <laughs> we, get on, we get on well now. I mean, we had a, we had a sort of a making up um, Towards the end of my writing career, my previous stint as a writer, and he was a commentator, we had a chat at the back of the box and shook hands and said, "Okay, let's draw a line and start again." And uh, I haven't and uh, I haven't been in news- making newspapers all that long, so I haven't met, offended too many people. I've been at a few. <laughs> um, and uh, with Mark, his form dropped away badly. Um, I thought it dropped away badly, um, or, or he became much more inconsistent. He still had some terrific innings, but he came became much more inconsistent. Uh, during the latter part of his career. So if you look at yeah. his sort of career under Mark Taylor as captain, I think he averaged mid-40s and was terrific. Under Steve, I think he might have averaged mid-30s. And, and there's a couple of early tours, Steve Waugh tours, where he went really badly on Sri Lanka in 92 in Sri Lanka. Um, oh, that was Alan Border tour. What am I thinking of? West Indies. So it must have been... West Indies 99. West Indies 99, sorry. West Indies 99 was Steve's first tour as captain. And Mark had a terrible tour. He mightn't have averaged 20. And they, they drew a series they probably should have won. West Indies weren't all that good. Or they had some good fast bowlers, obviously. Um, and he was up and down on various other tours. And Steve actually wrote in his in his biography that he was actually critical of Mark for the, for the lack of support he got from Yeah, him, I remember that. Uh, with, his, with his captaincy. Um and so that was so that had a fair bearing on it. But I've worked, uh, I work with, I've worked with Mark in the media since, and he's been fine. I've, I've got on with him well. And uh, as I said, Shawnee and Warnie and I did have a, a, a make up, so I've gone on with him well since. So uh, let's see what happens on the next instalment. <laughs> I mean, Delisa, it was a different 
world back then in the media. I think the, the team manager sort of doubled as the media manager, the late Ian McDonald, and it was just a completely different setup. It was a bit more of the Wild West. Yeah, very much so, man. As it was very different. Like now you've got access to players as you're given access. Like they put a player up every day and you can request players and you do get them. It's much more organised than it used to be and, and, and you can get players much better after play sometimes for, for certain things than you, than you used to be able to. But with the same token, you don't have that same relationship because, you know, when I went on the 93 Ashes tour, you couldn't get the players out of the bar. And now you can't get them into the bar. You just don't see them. And, you know, and, you, and you're probably staying in different hotels. And so you just don't develop those same relationships that you used to. And, and I'm not saying I had many, but you had a few. Um, and you're able, you were able to talk to people at the bar sometimes if there was a problem. Um, now you just don't have that opportunity. So I think players are far more professional than they were. Um, and, and the whole setup's far more professional, but it's, uh, for, for the, for the journal on the beat as opposed to the, to the, to the, uh, young bloke who sent down out of the newsroom to, uh, to get a few quotes from a press conference. It's, uh, it's significantly different. That's what I find the hardest thing is that now you're not, um, sent all around also like you're not sent all around to um the tests you only do say you're the sydney reporter you do the sydney test and then your brisbane reported at the brisbane test and you can't really follow on things that you've sort of been pushing on because you're not there it's just a lack of i guess the resources nowadays and also that the technology is like zoom um means that they they don't need to send you but it you sacrifice a lot i feel um, of getting those little like snippets of when you might have a conversation with someone that um, leads you somewhere else, I think it's a, it's a real shame. So and and you, you got to you got to humanised people and you got you got a better feel for them. So the people you did talk to, you had a bit of a feel for, um, and you could you could better understand what was going on. And understanding what was going on was sort of an an important part of it. Um, so it's easier to sort of sit back and and you know bag the players for their, their shocking tour of Bangladesh and they did play poorly but and they do need to learn to play um, spin and to eat things out but I just feel that the you know the, the wickets in in, in Bangladesh were, were pointless for the progress of cricket in Bangladesh and, and cricket generally so I think that there are sort of other factors besides just sort of isolated dud performances um, but in the end as we all know it's a numbers game if you don't get the numbers you don't get a game mm. and we should just probably um point out to the listeners too that Mal uh, won a Walkley the Walkley award for that story which if you're internationally in Australia is the highest award in journalism and I think you're the only sports it's still the only sports story to win that win the Walkley right? Uh, I think Malcolm Knox won, won one two or three years ago oh, for, okay. for doing a when I was on the other side actually at uh, Cricket Australian Cricket New South Wales when he did a deep dive into the oh, yeah. The, the the counting of uh, participants uh, at grassroots level, and oh. found that uh, every time a player registered for a competition, they went into the uh, went into the system. So if you played a Saturday competition, a Sunday competition, a uh, a, a regional competition, you might get registered three times. Right. <laughs> um, and I wanted to ask you, Mel, uh, about obviously you've been with Cricket New South Wales and Cricket Australia for. Is it seven years or eight years that you were Six and a half there? years, yeah. Six and a half, right. Um, I wanted to ask how that, what that was like for you having been, being on the other side and then going back. Are there, like, are there people shaking in their boots? That, you know, where all the 
spotting star. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, I've made a few points already, so I'm, I've got a I've got a pretty good idea about some of the things that. But a lot of the things that happen behind the scenes sort of aren't very sexy. There's a lot of, I mean, it did open my eyes as to how hard, how many people work to put on a game of cricket. Like right. You just don't turn up and the thing happens. And it's and a lot of people that work in sport and certainly in cricket aren't all that well paid and, and they work very, particularly in the cricket season, work very long hours um, just to make things happen. And there's a whole lot of different areas and different things that, that have to happen. And it really did open my eyes as to what's involved and the depth. Of, and if you if you ask oh, why are so many people working for Cricket Australia or why are so many people working for Cricket New South Wales? Tell you what, there are times in the middle of the cricket season when you can do with more. <laughs> it mm. never seems enough. <laughs> so it's it's um, it was a real eye-opener and, and they're really, really good people to work with because, you, you know, almost everyone had a passion for cricket and you, you had that shared passion for cricket. So I really enjoyed that, but I did miss the cut and thrust of journalism. Um, I do feel that having sort of come... Come out of that side and back in the other side. I've taken off a bit of a straitjacket. I don't. I can be my real self um, and and sort of call a spade a spade, um, which is something that I've always enjoyed, and uh, sort of probably reinforced to me um, that while I do have a great passion for cricket, my real calling is probably journalism. Um, and uh, but I've, I've been very grateful for the the journey I've had. You know, from day dot, I covered my first test in uh, dare I say it, uh, nineteen eighty five. So um, I've. Uh, been in it for a while. Now, what was the actual reaction when you told the senior figures that you were leaving and going back to the media? Uh, I think they were too busy sort of um, sort of uh, digging, digging ditches and bunkering down for COVID to, to worry about what I was doing, I think. Um, uh, I'm not sure if people, uh, people thought about uh, what uh, sort of uh, reactions or ramifications it may have, but... Um, uh, I don't know. <laughs> okay. Well, Earl Edding certainly knows now. He uh, does indeed. Yes, indeed. <laughs> what was uh, what were the players' approach to media like when when you were there? Like, I've always found that cricketers seem to get it a bit more than perhaps in other sports, and also they have quite more of a professional front, front sometimes than other sports. Is that with it? Were they resistant when you sort of said, you know, you've got to do a media off? Were they resistant or were they? did they generally get it? Oh, look, 99% of the time I thought it was it was good to pretty good, you know. Um, and particularly when I worked with cricket, I was sort of a dual role, half cricket New South Wales, half cricket Australia. So, And so I dealt with a lot of international players at cricket New South Wales and through cricket Australia, but I also dealt a lot, dealt a lot with the state players and, and the young guys come in, like Ollie Davies, come in as a teenager, and and as uh, anyone who's seen him play in the in the Marsh Cup, the the, the state one day competition, he, he's got a beautiful, clean striker of the ball, and he's a lovely bloke. Uh, Jason Sanger has been in the system for a few years and has been a bit up and down, and and is a beautiful looking, wristy player, um, as you would expect with a with a background uh, like he's got. Oh, lovely kids, and they really speak well, and they're happy to do it. Um, it's part of they all just grow up, uh, just viewing it as part of, of their um, their obligations to cricket. That that they love cricket. That, that, that they're there to spread the word. You know, there's, there's times when um, you know senior players have had a tough day or whatever, and it can be a bit harder. Um, and there's, uh, but oh, I think that uh, overall, um, the players have been terrific, uh, really, and and really should be commended for what they do to get out there and promote the game. Excellent stuff. Well, I think we should probably let Mal go, guys, because um, we've been going for over an hour. Any last questions from Mal? 
just one last one, if I could. Um, I'm doing some podcasts for this podcast on Bill O'Reilly, and I, I, I know you, I remember you talking one day that in your early days, now you were got to spend some time with him. Would, would you be able to give me some uh, a quick thought about um or, or some stories that he might have said about his career, particularly his relationship with with Bradman? <laughs> so, um, Bill was, um, if you reckon I'm strong and straightforward, Bill was uh, very strong and very straightforward. Uh, he was a he was a terrific bloke, Bill. He was a a, 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 a school teacher um, who had been a, a, obviously a great cricketer in his time and uh, a bit of a raconteur and a knockabout sort of bloke, um, and um, had absolutely no qualms about saying exactly what he thought. And uh, obviously, a, a great like Shane Warne, a great advocate for spinners. And I remember one day uh, sort of talking to him years later about Jeff Lawson was playing a, a, a test against the West Indies in Adelaide and was going quite well, uh, which was better than the rest of his team, um, but behaving particularly poorly. And he ended up, I think, being fined $2,000 by uh, the Australian Cricket Board at that stage for his behaviour. So it must have been really bad for a player to have been fined in those days. <laughs> uh, and uh, Bill, Bill O'Reilly, sorry, had given him... Uh, absolute bake, really a scoriating piece uh, in the paper the next day about his behaviour uh, and uh, what, a, what a, uh, a disgrace he was to the baggy green cap. And so Jeff Lawson has, has written a strong and straightforward note to Bill uh, about what he thought of uh, Bill's uh, summary. And Bill marked it and gave him four out of ten and sent it back to the dressing room. <laughs> <laughs> Is that sort of fella? Oh yeah, I, I love talking to Bill. He was he was terrific, um, and uh, he 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 wasn't a fan of Bradman. That obviously those who understand the uh, the relationship there of uh, of uh, Bradman was a Freemason, and uh, uh, and and uh, Bill was a bit of a free willing Catholic, and so there was a bit of a, a divide there to start with. And Bill and his uh, and his mates uh, loved a drink, and they were at times Bill felt unnecessarily singled out by Bradman, who was a uh, it wasn't uh, it wasn't that sort of fellow at all, um, and uh, I remember asking Bill once, uh, Bill, have you have you ever written any of that sort of stuff about Bradman? And he said, Oh, he said, Yeah, look, I've written bits and pieces, but you don't piss on statues. <laughs> well, what a great way to leave this chat, Mal. Thank you so much for coming on Cricket Unfiltered. You've been such a great supporter of this podcast since the beginning, organising guests. Um, even the first guest, Curtis Patterson, and also you gave Paul and I our starting commentary. So we've got a huge debt um, t- to pay you. So thank you very much, and uh, we'll catch up soon. Thanks, Mal. Thanks, Mal. Thanks, guys. Really enjoyed it. Great stuff there with Mal Con. We'll take a quick break, then we'll be back to wrap up the show with Can't Let It Go. You're listening to the Cricket Unfiltered podcast. It's Mad Manners. The lovely Jaleesa Apps and Paul, the summer game, Dennett. Paul, do you have a can't let it go to start things off? No, oh, just briefly. I heard you talking on Cricket Daily the other day about um, cricket in the Olympics potentially returning, and you mentioned the 1900 Olympics and how um, England beat France. Well, it's actually they've, they've relegated the French team to a, an international side. Um, they're, they're no longer giving the French the silver medal because, as it turns out, all of the players who played for that team were actually English expats who'd gone over there to help build the Eiffel Tower. <laughs> And none of the players on either side were aware that they are actually in the Olympic Games. Cricket, hopefully, will come back into the Olympics. It shouldn't, as far as the Olympics are concerned. They should have nothing to do with it because, you know, a sport like cricket, golf, tennis, I don't think they should be in there. But as far as cricket's concerned, 
they should have been in there years ago. And it's a, an indictment, especially on England and India, that they didn't want to have um, cricket in the Olympics. It'll do wonders for cricket. There's no downside. So hopefully it'll be in in the 2028 um, games, whether it's T10 or T20 or the 100 or whatever. I don't really care. But um, I think it'll be um, a really great great boost for, for cricket's um, profile in the world. I agree. They have to do it. And it'll be great for the Olympics if they want to expand into sort of South Asia. Uh, you know, grab cricket as, as something, as a tool for that and grow the Olympics internationally. So I think it could work work for both sides. So, Jaleesa, now I know I've put you on the spot. Do you have a can't let it go for today's podcast? I don't know. First of all, I can't let it go that you called me the lovely Jaleesa about three minutes ago. I'm still wondering what you want after this podcast, but that shall be dealt with later. <laughs> um, <laughs> I oh, just, some, uh, just some good news that um, Steve O'Keefe has, has signed with the Sydney Sixers for another season. Yay! I'm really excited about this because he's just such a fan favourite and he's so entertaining and I think he's still got a, a bit to give and I was very disappointed when uh, Cricket New South Wales decided to cut him and uh, but he was still playing in the Big Bash and then the end of last year, I, mem- I remember asking, uh, uh, this year, sorry, I remember asking Moses of Reeks, uh, can, can Steve play on? He goes, well, yeah, of course he can play on. It's just... You know, he says every day he's going to retire. So, um, just really, he, uh, that news came out uh, on my birthday, so it was a nice birthday gift. And he actually said one of the um, quotes that he said, there's nothing better than playing in front of your home crowd. I've never experienced a crowd quite like last year's final. They were cheering dot ball. So that was true. There was just such an amazing atmosphere and it got me all excited for the Big bash again, but in the final, everyone was cheering for him. All around, there was just everyone cheering, sock, sock. And so just goes to show how loved he is. And uh, he's such a character and he's one of the rare sort of characters that has such a great personality. So I'm really excited to see him play on. I like how you snuck in there the birthday. So that means your birthday was what, this week? Yeah, my 26th birthday was on uh, Monday. The 9th of August. Happy birthday. Well, our birthdays are one week apart. I was the 2nd of August. Uh, Oh, really? We're both Leos. Happy birthday. I was on that press conference call with Stephen O'Keefe and there were a few key takeaways. I asked him about whether he would like to play in T20 leagues around the world and I found it was a really interesting answer. He said that he doesn't really want to because he finds it hard to sort of motivate himself for those franchises that, you know, he loves playing for New South Wales and the Sixers and that's what's keeping him going. But he probably wouldn't be able to take that level of professionalism to overseas leagues, uh, which is a strange answer. I always get the feeling talking to Steve O'Keefe that the the cricket is completely secondary to everything else that comes with it. So not that he doesn't take his cricket seriously and, and try his hardest, but it's more the team environment and the, fans and the atmosphere that he completely loves and then oh yeah there's a bit of cricket that's why we're here if you could aim for cricketing nirvana which would be to be picked up by an IPL franchise and not play a game <laughs> get paid the money and just sit around and have a holiday I just don't think he wants to go. And the other thing I asked him was, I said, look, Steve, what am I going to do? They've scheduled the Big Bash and Test matches at the same time, and I'm just not sure how to do it. And he he said he would watch the Test matches in my position, but he would have two screens going. So I'm, I think I'm going to take his advice. My can't let it go for this week is um, overnight, 
Hobart Hurricanes player Tim David smashed 140 not out for Surrey, 140 not out of 70 balls and a 50-over game, and uh, Surrey ended up winning. And uh, you know, Tim David's a player to watch. He, he did well in the uh, Big Bash last summer. He was sort of unheralded. He's, he's actually a Singaporean international player. And then he went to the Pakistan Super League earlier this year and turned a few heads with some eye-catching performances. And now this 140 for Surrey, albeit in a very weak 50-over competition. Still, I think Tim David is a player to really keep an eye on um, in short-form cricket over the next couple of years. All righty. Well, um, yeah, great stuff today. The podcast really loved having Mal on. I hope uh, the listeners enjoyed it as much as we did. Any parting words for the audience? Thanks for listening to the whole show. Um, yes. <laughs> yeah. Congratulations on making it to the end. <laughs> um, also, I'm thinking of all those cricketers uh, that um, uh, looking at like playing subbies this year and they're looking at the COVID numbers in New South Wales because I don't know how they're going to get those um, competitions underway. So I know there'd be a few nervous people. Yeah, it wouldn't be such a bad thing if last man standing didn't get off the ground. Just joking. I love that. Oh, but she'll have the hundred. Yeah, I love the hundred. Uh, well, I guess let's wrap it up. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Uh, you know, lots of love to everybody who's in lockdown in Australia. It's a tough time, but we're thinking of you. We hope you enjoy this podcast and, you know, brighter days ahead. On Florida's Space Coast, we think you can have the best of both worlds. Kind of like right now. Driving. At your desk. Maybe at the gym. But you're also grooving to some music. Visit us and you'll go to the beach. And see a rocket launch. Or go kayaking and manatee spotting. It's all waiting for you on the only beach that doubles as a launch pad. Plan your adventure today at visitspacecoast.com. Sports Social Podcast Network.